This is the Dr. Mama Podcast with your host, Dr. Alice Coughlin. Hello, and welcome back to the Dr. Mama Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Dr. Mama Podcast. <laughs> right. Right. This is episode four for December 24th, 2020. That's a lot of fours and a lot of twos. Yes. It's great. I love <laughs> twos and fours. They it's are the even. festive fours. Festive fours. Happy December, y'all. <laughs> we have a great show for you guys today. Uh, but first of all, actually, because we've had, it's been quite the eventful week, because not only is it uh, a festive holiday season, um, we, uh, you also had one of the best uh, best presents you could ever get, didn't you, this week? I did. I got an amazing mRNA vaccine into my left arm, <laughs> which <laughs> felt great. And I am now partially vaccinated against COVID-19. You are now superhuman. Just in time for me to go on to ICU next week, <laughs> because our ICU is currently full of COVID patients, as one would expect. Um, so I'm very grateful. All, all jokes aside, I am incredibly grateful to have received my first dose of the COVID vaccine. And I have my next one scheduled for January 8th. And I had about not even 24 hours of mildly sore left arm and have had no other side effects at all. It's such good news and I'm so very excited. It's amazing. I was talking to one of my attendings at work today, though, and he was mentioning that he was almost disappointed that he didn't have side effects from his vaccine because he wanted the side effects to have the reassurance that he had actually received <laughs> the vaccine. Is not having a slightly hurting arm for a 24 <laughs> hours not enough? <laughs> Insufficient. That just means that you got any vaccine. <laughs> any old vaccine. We wanted the COVID vaccine. <laughs> anyway, we got it and we're very happy. Uh, it's, it's so exciting. It's sort of like this. And th those listening to this in like a couple of years time or whatnot, like we're at a point now where we're seeing the beginning of the end. And hopefully when you're listening in two years time, it is finally the end. <laughs> this has been one of the most insane years of my entire life where we have witnessed just a horrific amount of death and dying in our hospital and in our communities. And to have any hope that it might actually be coming to an end someday. It just it's overwhelming and wonderful literally after i received my vaccine i couldn't stop dancing i like danced my way over from the hospital <laughs> to the clinic and he, all of my co-residents who were in clinic with me that day could vouch for the fact that i was literally like <laughs> dancing in the precepting room I, see i like this a lot i've seen a lot of people on twitter and friends of ours who have got like, really emotional or uh, like cried or like were happy but there's that only alice only one person <laughs> i know would spend the day dancing around with joy I like, I like, I was just happy. And when I'm happy, I dance. It's just <laughs> how I respond. It's either that or gymnastics. And I feel like doing that across uh, the yeah. clinic floor would be le less. Doing, <laughs> walking on my hands from the hospital to the clinic <laughs> from like an icy, icy path that goes down, drops down into the river might not have been ideal. <laughs> I'm very glad you didn't do that. Yeah, you got too. the COVID vaccine. You're fairly invincible now, but not quite that much. <laughs> I still wouldn't do so well falling into an icy river. Uh, this week has also been fun because it's uh, we've had Hanukkah, which is always really fun. That's really northern fun. Fun, sorry, <laughs> fun. Is it fun? Is that better? Sorry, y'all. Yeah. Sorry, fun, 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 fun. Is that better? Better? Is that? Is it, it's uh, been Hanukkah, everybody. Fun. It's been great, and this was my children's second and fourth Hanukkahs, respectively. 
But and I think the first that they both really sort of paid attention yeah, to. Yeah, the first that they were both with it enough to really get into it. Like, even our two-year-old this year was helping light the candles and choose the candles and kind of mouthing along to the words, you know, <laughs> starting to get it. Um, but we had excitement both nights. Did you want to tell this story? Well, the, the, the first two nights were rather fun um, because, it's you know, it, as, it, as, tra- as is tradition, you light candles, you sing a song, and then what do you do? You blow, blow out the out. candles. <laughs> Our kids are obsessed with birthdays and love <laughs> to sing happy birthdays. And we didn't realize that their automatic response to lighting <laughs> candles and singing a song was then going to be to blow out the <laughs> candles. And we had to be like, no, pull them away. <laughs> they got the hang of it by the end, but it was, yeah, <laughs> it was like, great. no, no, no. Now, now I'm worried is when we have our next birthday and birthday cake, they're going to be scared of blowing those out <laughs> candles out. <laughs> Which would be fine for any of our birthdays, but, you know, for theirs. The next one isn't until uh, July, so I think we're safe. We've got six months to forget the Hanukkah (laughs) thing. (laughs) Anyhow, who have we got coming up on the podcast today, my love? I'm so excited for our guest today. We are talking to Dr. Patricia Moyer, also known as Pat Moyer. I don't think I've ever heard uh, referred to as Patricia before. That was strange. I don't think I've ever said that. (laughs) Um, She is a longtime friend of my family. I have known pat and her family ever since i was four um i actually grew up going to the same quaker meeting as pat and her family and i am approximately the same age as her middle child she has three children and my family has three children and we're all in the same age range um so we were really good friends growing up and she was one of my mentors from when i first decided that i wanted to go into medicine I remember doing a summer internship in her outpatient office when I was 18, and um, I did a lot of just entering um, paper charts into the new EMR, but it was so much fun for me, and I got to shadow the MAs. I got to learn how to do IM injections and take vitals and blood pressures, and I learned the very basics of blood draws. It was It was just, like, for me, so wonderful to get to be in a clinical environment what I'd been dreaming of as just that extra little bit of motivation as I was starting college and starting on that long journey. So Pat is an internal medicine doctor. She trained at Albert, no, she did medical school at Albert Einstein in New York and then she did her residency training at Cambridge Health Alliance in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And she has now practiced for somewhere around 40 years at Mount Auburn Hospital, um, doing mostly outpatient medicine, but also following her patients in the hospital and also teaching with the Mount Auburn Internal Medicine Residency Program. And it was just absolutely a wonderful interview. Um, we'll sort of, you know, we won't give too much away now when you listen, but it's, this was the first interview we, 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 we have done with uh, someone from a different generation than ours. Um, so it's been really, it was really interesting hearing all the stories of becoming uh, not only a doctor mama, but becoming a woman in medicine. Like it's an entirely different world and you'll hear how absolutely awesome uh, Pat or Patricia is. <laughs> um, so yeah, shall I, we'll just get on with it. Let's have them yeah, listen here we to go. it. And uh, we'll see you at the other end. Pat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. 
Alrighty. So can you start by giving us your story in whatever words are best for you? How did you become a Dr. Mama? Well, uh, I went to medical school straight out of college and I was not thinking about motherhood at all. I was just thinking, what was I thinking? I was thinking <laughs> I majored in physical chemistry and all I knew is I didn't want to, I didn't want to work in that field. I didn't want to be stuck in a lab my whole life, even though it was interesting. Um, so I went to med school as a kind of single person. And when I was in medical school, which is back right, um, right during Vietnam, there were, it was still a very much a minority experience. So there were, I think 10 or 11 women in my class of 110 or so people. Wow. And I know it's changed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the other thing that had happened was that medical schools had finally realized that um, they probably ought to educate somebody who didn't have white skin. So there were maybe 10 or 12 young people of color, both Hispanic and black. And they, they double dipped. And uh, so some of the women were also people of color. So it was like they, they got both their things in at the same time. Um, so anyway, there were all these guys around, most of whom weren't very interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> there were one or two that were, uh, but really, you know, there mostly it was just working all the time. Yeah. And that was fine with me because I wasn't really, I wasn't really looking. It was nice to have a few guy friends and, but there's nobody I've really kept in touch with or anything. Um, so, Let's see. So then I came up to uh, Cambridge for residency. Um, and so where, where was med school? Med school was at Albert Einstein in New York City. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So it was, a, it was a chance to live in New York. And um, which was really great, actually. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to live in New York, but it's a great place to sample. Um, and the school that I was at had a whole lot of, um, you know, we, we had very diverse hospitals. So it was anything from Montefiore, which was sort of middle-class Northwest Bronx, um, kind of the, the cream hospital of the Bronx. And it's a very good hospital, at least it was then down to Lincoln, which was like the trauma capital of the world, practically. Um, so the surgeons loved it. But it was, you know, down in the South Bronx, which was kind of exciting every day. Um, and, and then everything in between. So anyway, um, so I, I was kind of focused on just getting through training and stuff. And I wasn't really thinking about much of anything else. So, and residency was at Cambridge Health Alliance, which was Cambridge Hospital back then. Um, and 
you know, a, we had a small cohort of people. And again, it was like three women and 12 or 13 guys. And um, I don't think there were any of them that I had my eye on or vice versa. Um, and so it wasn't really until I got out. I spent a couple of years in a neighborhood health center and realized it was a horrible place to practice because it was really dysfunctional and it didn't have what I wanted. I thought it would, but it didn't. And I had a horrible boss who was stealing some money of mine. Oh, wow. Anyway, so I got out of there. So then um, I came to Mount Auburn on a kind of a whim. There was sort of a weird ad in the New England Journal and it turned out they were trying to establish more practices in various communities. So um, I so I worked out a deal with them. And then I sort of finally had a little more stability in my life and less kind of less time getting started and learning stuff. And um, so how old was I then? I was probably in my early 30s. And so I started like going hiking with the AMC and I met Bruce on a mountains and music thing. What's um, the AMC? With the a Appalachian Mountain Club, sorry. Oh, nice. awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's see if I can see you with this. Yeah, you're there. I know you're there. Hello. Hi. Um, okay, I just, there it is. Okay. Oh, good. Um, so, and it turned out he lived like a half a mile away from me, even though we met up in in uh, northern New Hampshire. So, anyway, at some at some late point, I think I was thirty five when we got married, and I again I still hadn't been thinking about kids at all. It was like, well, whatever. And then suddenly, like, the bug got me. And, and I remember within like six months, I was like, we have to have kids. And <laughs> what did Bruce think of that? Uh, he was, uh, well, he's a few years younger than I am. So he was a little shocked. <laughs> um, and, but became willing enough and it didn't take too long to get pregnant. Um, and by that time, I think I had been practicing long enough to have, I mean, I didn't come to Mount Auburn with like, they, they didn't present me with a panel of patients. I had to sort of find them all myself. And within a couple of years, my income depended on having, having enough patients. So, so this was after all that had happened and I was kind of more established. Um, so, um, so within probably six months of getting married, I was pregnant and at some point it began to dawn on me that this was going to take some time. I didn't take a whole long time for, I think I took like a, 10 or 11 weeks of maternity leave and it was mm -hmm. this time of year because Emily's birthday is the 23rd of October. And she's just turned 34, so that's how long ago it was. So um, I was breastfeeding. And um, 
So I had to find daycare that was close to my office and mm. to the hospital. And uh, fortunately, a, uh, a colleague, you know, when I was sort of waddling around the hospital at eight months was like, do you need daycare? And I said, yes. And she told me about this woman that had taken care of her kids when they were little, um, who was, you know, right next to Star Market on Mount Auburn Street. It was like five minutes from my house and three minutes from Mount Auburn. It was perfect. So I, after I was done with maternity leave, I started pumping and I gave her, her name was Dilla. That was not her real name, but that's what she went by. Um, and so Emily, I just gave her a lot of bags of frozen breast milk and we somehow managed to keep that up for over a year. With wow. lots, I mean, I rented a, I rented an industrial pump. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the sort of plastic ones are hard to really get it all out of there. Yeah. So anyway, um, and what, what Bruce and I set up was that four out of the five days of the week, either he or I would pick Emily up um, around 2.30. So she'd get there maybe at 8 or 8.30, and we'd pick her up at 2.30. And... Um, the fifth day was an all-day affair. Um, so I had to rearrange my schedule so that I could get out of there at 2.30. So back in that day, we all had paper charts. So I would like load up the back seat with all these this unfinished work and phone calls and things to write and grab Emily. And then the afternoon was about Emily and the evening was kind of finishing my work. Wow. Um, and... Um, that worked out pretty well. And then Luke came along two and a half years later. Um, and uh, let's see, how did it work? So shortly after Luke was born, um, we enrolled Emily in a, um, in a um, co-op daycare thing at it's called the Harvard Yard Child Care Center. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No. So anyway, it's one of these things where the, there's parent help every afternoon so nice. or morning. So like there's always a parent there. So we picked the afternoon. So it was, I can't even remember how we did it, honestly, because we had <laughs> Luke at Dilla's and Emily at Harvard Yard. And we had to go in one day a week. So Bruce and I took turns. And it was actually really fun. Uh, I love to cook with children. So a lot of times I'd take them in the kitchen and we'd make stuff. Nice. Um, what was Bruce doing at that point? Bruce was working for himself. So it was way easier to get away. He worked mm. in the basement fixing, <laughs> <laughs> fixing um, musical instruments and or doing kind of cabinet work for, you know, building things for people. And his shop was in the basement, too. So the whole okay. thing was happening in the basement. Um, so, you know, he would just, like, put everything down and go. And I was always, like, tearing in at the last minute. Uh, <laughs> you know, kind of like, ah. But it worked. It was crazy. So that's the main thing I remember is just, like, trying to get it all done. It was um, 
it was, I, I wouldn't have changed it. And I have a colleague now who has three little children between five and 10. I mean, they're out of the daycare stage and her husband has a more, um, you know, he works in IT something or other. I mean, and he has to be wherever he has to be. He, he has, it's, it wasn't like Bruce. So it's some, they used to have one of their parents doing the daycare and they finally gave up and got an au pair um, because they just couldn't do it. And I'm not sure really how we did it. The other thing we did was um, we lived in Watertown then and Bruce remodeled the attic so that there were two rooms and a bathroom. And shortly after Luke was born, I think we, we sort of advertised the room as free, the rooms up there as a free place to live in exchange for two, two and a half hours of help in the afternoon, like between say, I think four and six thirty or something. Oh wow! Um, so it was kind of co co parenting with that time. If so, that that really took some of the burden off. How how did that search work? How did you yeah. find somebody? Yeah. I don't know how we found people. I'm trying <laughs> to remember. Um, the first person was this guy called Malcolm, who was a radiology tech in training at Mount Auburn. So maybe he heard that way. But I think we used like people we knew and I don't know how else we found people. Like, I, um, you know, and they were varying qualities. Malcolm stayed yeah. for several years and he was very good. Luke used to call him Gackham. When he uh -huh. And, you know, he was there to, so Luke liked to watch cars. So Luke would go Gackham, watch cars, you know, when he was two. And they'd go and sit on the front steps and watch cars go by. <laughs> um, so, uh, how did you feel at that at that point when you realized that actually you may need to be asking someone for help? Because I know that's kind of a situation you always feel even like today, we feel guilty that you're asking for help with your own children. Yeah. Um, but obviously back then it was still, it was probably the stereotypes were even worse. Um, how how did you, you feel about stereotypes that? Stereotypes about mothers not working. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I just, I think, well, I felt slightly desperate. I felt like I didn't care what anybody thought. I knew we <laughs> needed, like, we needed a tripod to make it all work. Yeah, and yeah. we had these rooms upstairs that were actually the nicest rooms in the house. <laughs> and uh, we knew there were people around. It was, it was mostly sort of people in grad school kind of thing who were looking for a cheap place to live. And, and they didn't have any money either and were willing to do it. So I think we did that for probably five years until the kids were in school. Mm -hmm. Um and then, uh, so I didn't, you know, I sort of grew up having to ignore what other people thought yeah. of just about everything because, you know, med school was like, you know, I mean, just even women being in medicine was, was unusual and women majoring in science was unusual. And, 
the whole thing. So it was like, well, forget them, you know. <laughs> so you had this hardened shell just to go, I yeah, am doing what I'm doing. I'm ah. doing what I'm doing, and I don't have any doubts about it. So yeah. get out of the way, kind of. Um, and the, the few women that were around then, uh, I mean, when, when Diana, the, the person who told me about Dilla, she just looked me right in the eye and was like, do you need daycare? And I was like, how does she know? Well, I knew how she knew because she had three little kids, but <laughs> it was the most direct offer of like, I know you need daycare. <laughs> Here's someone who I trust. And yeah, I didn't even look around, really. Um, so those were kind of the props. And then we developed this, you know, routine of sort of we made dinner the best we could. And then we went upstairs and Emily looked, took a bath together. And one person cleaned up the kitchen and the other one did the bath. And then we, they got a story. And then there was like about 45 minutes where at least I could sort of stay standing. And then it was like, crash. <laughs> uh, and then get up and do it all again. Our kids figured out fairly early that there was a routine. I mean, we were really lucky because both of them, all, all three of them, but in those early years, they were almost never sick. Um, and they also kind of got with the program. So after a while, <laughs> they decided that the easiest way to make the morning go easily was to wear their clothes that they were going to wear the next day to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and then they didn't have to get dressed in the morning. It was like, great. And we didn't have any problems with it. So that's, that's kind of how we we, you know, we just tried to make a routine and say, this is how it is. And how old were they when they decided that? Um, I, my guess is they were like two and four. Oh my goodness. Nice. That's amazing. <laughs> That's the age of our kids right now. Yeah. That yeah, sounds right. like the kind of thing they would decide. Yeah. 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 Like Although mostly our kids just don't want to wear clothes at all. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, later on with Luke, he didn't want to wear very many clothes and he liked to go around all winter with like shorts on and insisted that he wasn't cold at all and you know he didn't need anything and and he really wasn't i think he really liked the feeling of loose clothes and air on his skin and stuff like that we're having a slight issue today the day we're recording today is um actually halloween and we've just had a crazy amount of snow Five for october inches of snow. Um, yeah. and we were having that battle this morning before before yes. uh, chatting to you like oliver trying to get clothes on and felix trying to get clothes on he's like you're gonna be cold is how you go yeah. ah. they're gonna go sledding and not wanting to wear their warm clothes right yeah. and getting getting that balance right of uh just letting them discover that it is cold and right. also them not getting ill is <laughs> it's quite right. a battle isn't it well uh, or not you know not having to come home in 20 minutes because they were cold yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah try to get them prepared i know i mean it's you know, I suppose when you're two and you've really not experienced winter before, it's like this whole yeah. idea of you're going to be cold. It's like, what does that even mean? Yeah. You know, and <laughs> Oliver probably doesn't remember no. how cold it was last winter. You know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you're the interpreter of reality. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, for a number of years, it kind of went on like that. Like I would 
bring home 10 or 15 charts and on the days when I was home in the afternoon and you know sometimes I'd try to make a few phone calls or I would get both kids what I tried to do during the nice months was get both kids uh, and take them somewhere outside like a playground mm -hmm. or the duck pond at Belmont High School or go down by the Charles or whatever there was um, just so we could play outside and uh, at least until you know it got close to dinner time um, let's see what else um, we let's see I'm trying to think uh, at at some point the idea came to me that we needed to have three kids not two and we went through a horrible period of disagreement for about a year like Bruce saying there's too many people in the world we shouldn't have any more kids and I was like but I really want another child and uh and then let's see so I think the kids were about six and four then mm -hmm. and then one Christmas we were down at my sister's house in um in New York and I got some kind of bug and I was like nauseated without throwing up and I spent the whole night lying there going like, I feel like <laughs> And then I said to myself, you know what, this is how you're gonna feel for three or four months if you get pregnant again. And I suddenly realized I just didn't wanna go through that. Right. So fortunately we had had several friends um, who had recently adopted children um, for various reasons but mostly it was either primary or secondary infertility and they had all had good experiences one uh one had adopted a child from korea and one had adopted two kids from india and i think there was someone else but anyway we went and talked to them about adoption like what's it really been like as a parent um and what are the reasons we should or shouldn't do it and we it was it turned out to be both the thing that kind of brought us back together number one but also it was the adventure that we needed after like six years of you know this routine of like get up mm. put on your coat have your breakfast finish your breakfast let's pack your lunch you know and let's go off yeah. to where you're going off to and then reverse it all the night before and it was like oh we could go to nepal <laughs> we could go to guatemala you know we could do all these things and we went to several adoption you know kind of open houses that they have and what they do is you know the head of the agency talks to you for a while about adoption and who's the right person and or people and where their programs are and then they march up some parents to talk about it which is usually the selling point because it's mm -hmm. so heartrending the stories um so we decided we liked we used alliance for children in wellesley and there, then there's this long ridiculous process of you know them studying you and your home and writing all these documents and meeting with them and paying them lots of money and then paying them some more money and 
all this other stuff. But then all of a sudden, I think in, let's see. So, uh, in the, in the early part of 1994, um, suddenly they were like, well, we have your kid picked out <laughs> and you're going to China in three weeks. And so we had to find people to look after Luke and Emily. And it was, it was a great experience because first of all, we had two weeks away from the other two and, and we got to go to China, which is like, you know, we never would have probably ever done that. And China at that point where we went to this town called Hefei, um, uh, which is about an hour plane flight from where is it from? Uh, we, yeah, Shanghai. So it's an inland province where they uh, grow a lot of tea and it's fairly agricultural. And there were no white people there. Um, it was very sort of like at, at after the sun goes down, this was in February, the lights are mostly out. You know, the airport was dead quiet. We were the only thing happening. And it just felt so foreign, you know, it, like the people who, you know, when you go through customs, it's all these uniformed men with no expression on their face and no welcoming, no smiles. And, you know, it was, and then we got to the hotel and, you know, they, they picked the nicest hotel in town for you because they know we expect something or something. And it was still like, oh, my God. But the, the people behind the counter looked at us and they had this expression of terror on their face. Oh like, what the hell are these people going to be like? You know, we've never seen these people before. Um, and, you know, it was just a regular hotel check in, but they were they were just horrified. And so our group, we had this group of five families and it was a very motley group um and uh but we got to be very close actually and they you know everything was hilarious and exciting and fun because everybody but us had been childless and we were the only ones who had two kids and so we became a little bit the sort of authority on children, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but um, but, uh, but we were all like, you know, holy cow, here we are. And then they told us that our kids would come the next morning. Like we were totally jet lagged and everything. Wow. And then boom. Um, so... Uh, and that's what happened. Like at nine in the morning, the foster parents showed up on a balcony in the hotel with our children. And there was this, you know, tearful, um, and it was very Chinese because it was kind of like, you know, you hand the kids over, you exchange a few words and goodbye. Um, you know, goodbye. (laughs) Uh, You know, the kids are not supposed to, you know, the kids have no, there's no gradual introductions. It's just like stiff upper lip, 
this is your new home. Goodbye. Wow. And we, yeah. And how so, and we she? had a toddler. I mean, Caroline was 16 months old. Wow. She was beside herself. Um, and uh, so we just had to live with that for the, for the day. So she cried all day long and well into the evening until she was completely exhausted. Um, and the next morning they had these little, little wire baskety bed things that they slept in. And the next morning she woke up, she was at the foot of our bed and she sort of raised her head up <coughs> and saw us. And her face was like, not you guys again. You know, like, <laughs> However, being the practical individual that she is, uh, we then went down to breakfast, which in China is like lunch and dinner. It's like everything, everything yeah. you could want. It's a buffet. And they did have scrambled eggs for the, for the, for the few non-Chinese people there, but it's mostly Chinese business people and all men, but mostly it was like all kinds of stuff. And she was really hungry because she hadn't eaten anything the day before. And so she like tucked in and started eating and kind of like was like, okay, here I am. What now, what are we doing? And over the course of the week, uh, she got, she didn't really relax, but she realized it was okay. <coughs> and on Friday, we went to visit the orphanage that all these kids had been in because they wanted us to see it. And not her foster mother, but the, the father of the, um, the father of the foster mother. So what they do is for older kids who are like not infants, they go to a home where there is a foster parent. The foster parent was like 19, you know? Wow. Um, so the father came, which was not someone she was especially attached to and brought her a little treat that he knew she liked. And mostly it was to spy on us and decide whether we were okay or not. So anyway, that was our adoption story. And then we came home and Emily and Luke, and it was Gonda de Figlia who was taking care of the kids, um, met us at the airport along with a bunch of other people from Fresh Pond Meeting. So anyway, now we had three kids. So I took a much longer um, maternity leave with Caroline because I figured it wasn't just having a baby. It was like acclimatization to everything. And my partners were not too happy. I did find somebody who sort of substituted for me and then stayed on at the practice. I convinced them that that's what we needed to do. Um, I had two people who were my co-workers who weren't very enthusiastic about what I was doing. But they all had children and they knew they couldn't stand in the way. Um, and... And then I worked sort of a reduced hours for a few months so that we had less of that frantic daycare stuff. Um, and we were impoverished, but it was fine. And then I went back to a more of a regular schedule in the fall and Caroline started uh, a daycare that was across the street that I knew 
I didn't like as much as Harvard Yard, but it was like at that point, our lives were just too complicated. Um, yeah. And we needed some place where we could drop off, drop off and go to work. So, um, and it was fine. It was nothing. I mean, Harvard Yard was like a one of a kind place. It was just great. Um, and this was just fine. <laughs> so, and Caroline was, actually, first she went to family daycare. I forgot about that. To, she went to a different family daycare that was really good. Um, and then the last year she went to preschool at this place across the street. Um, and so by then, you know, the older two were in school and the young, and Caroline was either in family daycare or this other daycare for a few years. And then, and things, uh, because we knew we didn't want a baby. We knew we couldn't sort of start all over again. For one thing, we were both getting older. And, so, and Caroline proved again, I was like, we are so lucky. She really had no delays. Um, she was at 16 months, she was already walking and starting to talk. Most adopted wow. kids from another who are living in, you know, um, like orphanages or whatever have, have a lot of delayed development, which they can catch up on really quickly, but we didn't have any of that. She didn't talk much for a year. What, when she was talking, when you first met her was what language was she talking? Chinese, Mandarin. Mandarin, okay. Yeah, but it, she didn't say much of that to us, but she, we knew she was understanding what the Chinese people were saying to her. But she wasn't understanding what you were saying to her. No, no, she didn't. And she just didn't say anything for a long time. And then she, and probably about a year later, so she was two and a half, she started to talk. And by the time she got to, you know, um, I mean, she just, it just came, it just came along. So, and we were a little bit fortunate. I mean, we didn't worry that much about it. We sort of thought about it, but Emily was a, a late talker and walker. Luke was an early everything. <laughs> it's the second children's syndrome. The second isn't children, it? Yeah. They ignore them and they do fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember Luke took his first steps when I was on the phone. <laughs> He was like 11 months old and I was on the phone with a patient trying to catch up with stuff I hadn't and I heard these little steps behind me <laughs> and it was one of my my afternoons and uh I was like who's walking you know and then I looked around and there he was off into the next room <laughs> <laughs> like I missed it <laughs> but but you know what I was like, so what? You know, he, he'll keep walking. I can see it then. <laughs> but, um, you know, and it was a big deal for Emily and it was a non-deal for Luke. I mean, that's the thing. It was like Emily was, you know, just at the late end of everything. Um, and it, it's just who Emily is, you know. Um, then, you know, but when she learned to read, she was like way ahead of everybody. So it's just the way Emily is. And we, I think we had learned... Well, it's whenever they're ready, you know, by, by the time Caroline came along. So I, I worried a little, but she was fine. But, you know, health-wise and uh, adaptability-wise, um, you know, we really, 
we were just really lucky that none of our kids had any special needs or any ongoing health things. I mean, the biggest events were when everybody got chicken pox at the same time. And then wow. the other was when everybody got head lice at the same time, including oh. us. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, and I realized I was middle-aged when, so Emily was in second grade and I got a call from the school nurse. Like, Emily has lice, come and take her home right now. And I'm like, I can't come right now. And then I got there and she said, she's crawling with them. And I was like, what? what? I can't see anything. She's like, you can't see these things. I was like, no, I, you know, so it, it took special glasses. I had to, <laughs> yeah, close up glasses. And then I realized she had thousands of oh, them. No. Uh, it's just awful. Um, so, you know, that was the, as bad as it got. I mean, we spent Halloween one year picking head lice out of, out of everybody. So we spent the whole Halloween watching movies and picking, nitpicking, basically. But you were and, finding that people with uh, light colored hair. Yeah. So the light, light colored hair, they really, lice love it. And Caroline had about 10. Oh, wow. And Emily really literally had thousands and thousands of them. And Bruce and I both had some, his hair is lighter than mine. We, we probably had in the hundreds and Luke had in the hundreds. So um, it was family time. We, they couldn't go out for Halloween that year. Um, but, you know, we got through it. We, we did a million loads of wash. Just somebody called me the other day about head lice. And I was like, well, let me tell you what I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, let's see. So, uh, so basically around that time, I would say my career was mostly, um, you know, focused on practice. And I did a little bit of teaching of first year medical students with a couple of other people, uh, which was really interesting. And one of the things we did, uh, we had to interview a child. So in case any of these students thought about being pediatricians. So um, we had a couple of kids from the daycare uh, come in and the psychiatrist who was a child psychiatrist kind of did this little play interview and we filmed it and stuff. And um, that, that was really fun, but I didn't really, I couldn't really sort of think about branching out or, you know, I, I was just surviving basically because it was either, it was either, um, you know, the kids or, um, or work. I mean, that, that was what it was. And we didn't, back then, we didn't have electronic records. Everything was still on paper until, until uh, 2008. Probably, probably about 10 years ago. Yeah. Huh? It was until we, 2008 because that was how I spent a summer typing right. all of your records. Into I the know. Media. And your mother was <laughs> at me. It was awesome. I loved yes. it. Yes. My mother it was, was mad at you. I didn't know that. That's so funny. Yeah. Well, she was like, she's got to do something more than that. I'm like, well, what can she do? She doesn't know anything. 
<laughs> Very true. Anyway, she gets to see her and see the people walk through the door, and I, you know. I love that. Anyway. Yeah, so that was 2008, you're right. So we converted to our first record, and then in 2017, we went to Epic. So, yeah. so let's see. So... So the next big family event was moving to Lexington from Watertown. So Emily was, let's see, em Emily was finishing eighth grade. Luke was finishing uh, fifth grade, I guess. Yeah, no, sixth grade. And Caroline was finishing first grade. Mm. And um, we realized we needed to leave Watertown because Emily, who's a very um, unique uh, thinker, I would say, had basically no friends and was kind of just not doing very well in school and uh, just had a miserable time in middle school in eighth grade. We just, that was one thing. And then Luke in, in the classroom was just hanging out with all the kids who weren't going to even graduate high school and making fun of the sixth grade teachers, which uh, they deserved, actually. They had a bunch <laughs> of terrible teachers. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know. And the, um, the two principals who've been hired to kind of upgrade the school both quit at the wow. same time. And I was also realizing that there, there were a lot of uh, Middle Eastern people in Watertown, but very few Asian people. And Caroline was, I read the stuff about Asian kids getting stigmatized and all this stuff. And I was like, we have to get out of here. And before Emily went to um, kindergarten, we had sort of driven around trying to decide, should we stay in Watertown or should we move to a different community and we had gone to two grade schools in Watertown or no one grade school in Watertown two in Belmont and two in Lexington and actually and we went to a first grade and a fifth grade in every school and they, at that point they let us observe and actually the the best teachers we saw were in Watertown oh. <laughs> there was one good fifth grade in Lexington um, the first grade was awful and Belmont just seemed like too conservative a community for us. It was like all white bankers kids, kind of. Uh. So we had Lexington in our back pocket. So, you know, when all these things converged, uh, we made this sudden decision to leave. Like, and we sold our house in two weeks and bought another house. Wow. I know. It was, it was crazy. We bought this house. We moved. And then we decided we needed to go back to China. So that year, we, um, our vacation was going to China. And Bruce arranged the whole thing, which was great. And we visited uh, We visited with two of the three women who, oh, I forgot that. In, when Caroline was starting kindergarten or first grade, we had a teacher from, from Beijing who came and lived with us for a year in an exchange program with uh, at Brookline High School. So she taught Chinese to high school students and she lived in our, in that third floor again. Um, so we went and visited her and we visited um, another teacher that had been there that year. And we went to um, the place where they filmed 
uh, what's the film called? Something something flying dragons or something. Oh, catch, crouching crouching tiger, tiger crouching tiger flying dragon. Yes. Yeah. We went to that mountain and spent the night and we went back to Caroline's orphanage and met her foster mother who is now like a major teacher in the place and uh, and one of the best English speakers so she was kind of a valuable person and that was very emotional it was like she was and we Caroline and I made a scrapbook of kind of when she was the mother and when I was the mother and kind of things that had happened over the course of seven years and so forth. So anyway, we, that August, we went to China. Uh, and then three weeks later, the kids all started new schools. Emily started high school. Luke started seventh grade and Caroline started second grade. And like on the second week of school was nine 11. And it was like, it was, it was so much happening in a short period of time. Everybody slept in the same room for a week. Caroline wouldn't leave our bedroom for months. Wow. She just slept in a little quilt at the bottom of our bed. Um, and, you know, and we got to, you know, the schools handled it differently for all of the three grades. Um, but it reminded me, I mean, Emily was in high school and when we had open house, you know, a few weeks later, the teacher, the history teacher said they were, they were discussing what makes an is a historic moment. When the intercom went off and they told the high school kids what was going on. Oh my and it was like, how do these things happen? You know? Um, so, and, and meanwhile, Caroline came home <coughs> And, you know, they hadn't told the grade school kids. They waited for the parents. Yeah. And um, she said, I don't get the deal. I don't get this. Why is this such a big deal? She said, two buildings fell down. And they weren't even here. You know, like, what's the, <laughs> what's the problem? <laughs> so, so we lived through that. Um, and... Uh, I basically have never regretted moving here because I think the schools that the kids went to, I mean, Lexington is about a quarter Asian and Caroline's now engaged to a high school classmate who's a kid whose father is Japanese, his mother is Chinese, and both of them are first generation people. Um, they, you know, it just, it was a totally different experience. And Emily on the first day came home and said, all oh, the kids are just like the kids in Watertown. It's horrible. And then the next day she found her best friend that sort of sustained her. And actually she hung out with a lot of the Asian kids because they were nicer and they weren't as uh, sort of either driven scholastically or as snobby as some of the white kids. So she found people, she found her people. And she also founder people in music. I mean, they, they have a wonderful music program at the high school and she was very involved in it. So, and Luke, you know, was challenged to stop yucking around and at least do a minimum, <laughs> <laughs> which is sort of Luke's approach until he got to college. It was like, I don't really have to do much of this. It's, you know, I, I know what they're talking about. So, 
up. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing that we could say changed that. He was just like, none of this matters. And, you know, he was right. I mean, for him, he was right. He wanted to go to the University of Vermont. He went and looked up in the, in the um, counselor's catalog or whatever, and he found out that everyone from Lexington High School that applied to UVM got in. So what, why did he have to worry? He didn't have to worry. And he was right. He got in, yeah. you know? And then that was the time when things sort of changed for him. He actually got interested in something and he had a very good experience there. So, you know, like what we were saying didn't matter at all. So, um, Let's see. So, you know, by the time, so we were here and it was second grade and seventh grade and ninth grade. And, you know, those years just sort of fly by. Um, and uh, I decided I needed to do something to be involved at one of the schools. So uh, I became a founding director of the Lexington High School Landscaping Committee. Wow. There had just been a, a huge sort of $50 million or something renovation of the high school. And part of the renovation made they, mean, meant they, they, they raised the, the grounds. And there was just mud everywhere. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it was gross. And, they ran, and then they ran out of money. <laughs> so they couldn't <laughs> do anything about it. So we raised money and then we had two planting days a year and we got kids doing it and all that stuff. And um, so we really, it, that was the way I met sort of the good people in Lexington because these were all, they weren't just gardeners. They were really like natural native plant people and um, people who liked working with teenagers and mm -hmm. And people weren't afraid to get dirty and do it right and stuff. So, so that was a good thing. So that was how I gained notoriety in Lexington. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, by then, I'm trying to remember, did we still, I think we weren't doing the come home anymore. And Caroline went to after school until she was done with fifth grade. Um, and that was, again, I mean, I, I felt like it wasn't the greatest, but it wasn't terrible. She was all, and then one or the other of us would pick her up at five or five 30, or if it was me, it was like two minutes of six. Um, so, you know, I, I continued to have the feeling of just, you know, skittering into for home duties under the wire. Uh, which, you know, somebody told me if you become a parent, you never feel like you're doing a good job with either one. Um, but I, I, and I felt that way a lot, but I also felt like you have to let your children know um, how important they are to you, how much you love them. And when they encounter you know, difficulties, either that you perceive or they perceive or the school perceives or anything, you know, you have to really sit down and go like, all right, what, what can we really do about this and devote the time and energy and sometimes money to it. Um, 
So Emily was like pretty hopeless, not quite depressed, but kind of like the end of middle school. It was just a horrible three years for her. And uh, so in the summer that we were moving here, we sent her to this horse camp in Wyoming. And it was this great place that I, I don't know how I heard about it, but these people who own a private school in Maine also have this ranch in Wyoming. And there are people who live there all year long and take care of the horses, but the kids do ranch work all morning and then they're assigned a horse that's their horse to do everything for. And they, they also ride much of the afternoon. They go on trail rides or whatever. And Emily's really an animal person. So it was like, you know, it's not all like Watertown Middle School in the world. <laughs> we did that, you know. And then she got into some other stuff that, uh, like she went to, there's a French language, French university on Nova Scotia. She went there a couple of summers and it was a place, it's an immersion language program. And she really had a great time there. So, you know, she sort of came into herself, things turned around for her. Um, and um, so what else was going on? So anyway, I think around that time, I felt a little freer to um, get my interest in both education and writing. Um, and so I started doing, working on this book. And I also uh, became the person who runs this uh, conference for the residents every week on sort of ambulatory care. It's like they spend the week doing ambulatory care. And then on Fridays, we kind of go into various topics around it. And that's, um, the, that's the internal medicine residents at, yes. at Mount Auburn? Yes, the three-year residents. Um, so, you know, we cover, we have, sometimes we just do case reports. I have a whole segment where I'm trying to teach some better interviewing techniques. And then we have people come in and talk like last week, somebody came and talked to us about Medicare, this geriatrician who has done all sorts of interesting Medicare programs in his career and just talking about how it works and you know, what their effect on their Medicare patients is in terms of bills and stuff like that. And um, this week we had somebody come and talk about giving and receiving feedback. And sometimes I have a, like we have an ID person who comes reviewing outpatient ID cases and stuff like that. So we have a whole bunch of different things in that. But I think it was when see how long have I been doing that it must have been when Caroline was in high school that I started doing that and that meant Luke was probably finishing high school and Emily was already off at college that I felt like you know the kids can come home and take care of themselves I don't have to yeah. be here um, sometimes when I wasn't here and Luke was around some interesting things would happen um, like what? I was once gardening and I found a condom in the bushes <laughs> I was like, what were they doing? Oh <laughs> um, so, you know, 
but you know, for the most part, I felt like they did. I didn't have to be home when they were home. So I, I, I could have more time to sort of pursue yeah. my own interests. So how uh, did you, how did you deal with that? Because obviously, so you've just said like you finally got to a point you felt like you could, you could go back to what you were sort of like passionate about. Yeah. Um, that was obviously a long time. That yes. was a that was a long period of time. Yes. Um, how how did you keep yourself going and in your job? Interested in your yeah. medicine and feeling like you had yeah. a purpose in medicine. Yeah. Well, I've never. I've always liked taking care of patients, and I like being a generalist because then you know, uh, just about anything can walk through the door. So a lot of times it's mundane, humdrum, and some of some of that I deal with with just you know being interested in people's lives and what's what's happening this year you know what's happening to them even if their illnesses are not like challenging or something or they don't even have them but you know um but also being ready for probably at least once a week somebody walks through with a sort of critical problem that either needs like instant management or they go go back go off to the hospital in an ambulance or something and um i always i um i always wanted to keep following my patients in the hospital because that's where some really interesting things happen and i've been fortunate that mount auburn lets that happen um so you know patients are interesting enough it and sort of being just learning to be just gaining skill and experience as being a generalist, it was enough. And, you know, I never thought I was, I really grew up, I think, unconsciously thinking I was never going to have kids. Um, and I don't know where that came from. Hmm. Um, but even when I got married, I was like, well, if we have kids, it'll be fine. If we don't, that's fine too. I was kind of just like madly in love and it was enough to have Bruce and, Aww. you know, but like this switch clicked uh, and I really wanted to have them. And then yeah. just having them, um, you know, various, it, it, it was interesting. It was like, it totally involved my emotions. Um, you know, I was in love with all of them basically. And I felt so lucky um, to have three really, you know, very different, kids with different challenges and different personalities and you know just different everything yeah. and um you know there's a lot of really uh, funny stuff about having children <laughs> they're hilarious um and just little family traditions and stuff so i just felt like i really i wasn't looking for anything more than that and also survival was, uh, you know, <laughs> survival was key. And um, I think we knew we didn't want, you know, having our kids raised by, um, I mean, we needed a lot of help, we really did. But we, we wanted the kids to know who their parents were, I guess that's what I would yeah. say. Um, so there, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't feel like I was, I, I wasn't even paying attention to like, wow, I'd really like to do something else. Mm. I just, 
I didn't feel that way. I just felt like I have to tread water here. And it was a long time because Emily was born in 86 and Caroline and Luke in 89 and Caroline in uh, 93 and China was 95. And then it probably wasn't until Caroline was uh, probably in middle school. So that would be, I don't know, you know, 2010 or something. Yeah. Yeah, that that I felt like, oh, what else is going on? You know, <laughs> and both of my parents are were teachers, so, um, you know that that sort of was in the blood, kind of, and we have a teaching hospital just like Alice's, and so you know there was a lot of that that needed to be done, and. Uh, and by that time, I was pretty good at interviewing people. And I, I was just thinking the other day, I remember being in med school and there was this psychiatrist who I did like an independent study with just interviewing people with critical illness. And he sort of looked at me, he's like, you're really interested in this, aren't you? And then it just went underground. <laughs> and But I, I remember thinking, yeah, I, I was really interested in that. And now it's back again because I'm trying to show the residents how they can really understand more what their patients are trying to tell them they'd love to talk to them about. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, um, so, um, so that's what's occupying my mind right now. I, I, like, um, I like your approach to it, though, because it seems like whether it's your family, uh, your kids, your partner, or your job, it's, it's about people it's about their them as individuals and their stories and i i think that's a really lovely and healthy way to look at life because it's so easy just to get yourself particularly i feel like in the medical field because you kind of have this sort of drummed in almost scientific brain put to you that everything yeah. everything is data everything is a moving object a part right. of a system yeah it's the it's the appendicitis yeah. in room 378 yeah brain. yeah well, I think the science is definitely, you have to know it. And it's shocking how much people don't know, you know, both the, the, the doctors don't know and certainly the patients don't have a clue where anything is most of the time or how it all works. Um, so a lot of it is teaching. Um, so, but ha half of what we do is sort of understanding what's going on for people and sort of trying to fit in, you know, what they need to do with kind of what their, you know, what their makeup is, I guess. Um, but I feel like that's a, a healthy approach for all parts of life, really, is just to understand people. And I feel like, I, did you, do you feel like that kind of approach really helped you bridge the gap between your job and your family and also kind of help with your mental health of dealing with both of that situation, having more personal well, relationships? Definitely the reason I'm, I am most of the time I am not burned out because I have this whole, you know, collection of individuals that I've known for upwards of 40 years or sometimes people that I just met, you know, last week. And the, the different challenges that people have, um, 
never cease to amaze me, really. I mean, uh, and, and the way they kind of unveil themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I have residents with me in the office, so a lot of times they're like, their eyes are bulging a little bit because they didn't think it would be this way, you know, and, and they're kind of shocked at the kinds of things that they have to learn to deal with. A lot of, you know, many of them have had fairly privileged upbringings, not all of them. Um, But that makes it, you know, more of a shock to them. I think sometimes when they find out the kinds of decisions people make and they're like, you're doing what? (laughs) What are you doing? Um, so, uh, so anyway, just trying to be a person around the patients and then just drawing them out is, it's always, um, it's just very, it, it, it definitely is an antidote to, you know, the computer and all of its nonsense and the, the administrators who are like, you know, more, 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 you know. Uh, so, you know, yeah. oh, that's really great. Yeah. Do you feel like your practice of medicine as an interviewer and how you interact with your patients, especially your patients who are parents, changed after after you had kids, after Emily yes. was born, after you had had pregnancy? Yes. How? What I, happened? I have patients who had had babies within weeks of Emily and Luke (laughs) and so we're like how's Amy (laughs) what's she doing these days um and I also have patients that had kids around the same time who haven't done so well or you know various tribulations which uh you know and then I also have a uh, a large community of adopted parents and you know some of them i mean from all over the world um and some patients who are adopted themselves so that those we always catch up on the family even even if they weren't at the same time or whatever it's just you know a lot of it is how i mean a lot of how a mother is is how her kids are it's like if your kids aren't right you're not right you're just not. And so I'm always talking about, uh, and, you know, I, I understood that much better after I had kids. Like, I remember the first night that I went to the emergency room to admit a patient after Emily was born. It was probably 12 weeks after she was born, and I was just going back to work, and there was a crying child in one of the rooms, and... I was like, oh, I'm never going to feel the same way about that again. You know, mm-hmm. just um, whatever those parents are going through, what that child is going through, what, you know, I'm really glad it's not my kid in there, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, it just came sort of flooding back. But yes, it definitely changed because the children were much realer and and the older they got the bigger their problems can be and the more experience I have kind of listening to the scrapes and the 
decisions and the challenges and developmental challenges and stuff that um, that kids have and how parents have to learn so much to, you know, help their kid have the best possible life. And um, so, you know, that became much more of a topic, I would say, with, with mothers, especially, um, and I see way more women than men, but certainly several, a number of the men who I see are are more talkers than some. <laughs> and so, you know, like I have one uh, parent and one father that I saw just um, a few days ago. And he's one of the ones that has two daughters that were born very close to when Emily and Luke were. And one is a star and one's been struggling with substance abuse for years. And just like, uh, you know, how did he deal with it? Like all the stuff that he had to, uh, and you know, it of course affected his relationship with his wife who had a different feeling about how they should approach it. And, you know, what were the things that really helped him and what are the things that, you know, to, to kind of be the best father he could be, but also the best like non enabler that he could be. Um, and, you know, hopefully now she's better. Um, like very improbably, how, how did it happen? <laughs> and this guy has a kind of very like, yeah, how did it happen approach to things, um, kind of accepting. And he's also very funny and he's, uh, he's kind of, at least known all around knowing I mean he's he's a an entertainment guy I mean not an entertainment but he's he's on the radio or he was anyway so he had to be kind of uh he had to have a sense of humor to keep his job <laughs> yeah. anyway yes it definitely changed it because there was that much more in common and uh, a lot of times people want to know what is happening with the kids. And now when, you know, the first topic with all my patients is like, how are you staying safe? Are you staying safe? What are you worried about is, you know, how are your kids doing? And there's, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of kids not doing so well or kids who've moved home or kids whose lives are stalled, kids who are unemployed you know, grown kids, yes. kids who are, you know, not doing well in school, yeah. <laughs> such as it is, you know, all that kind of stuff to, to deal with. Wow. And when you became a mom and you felt like your relationship with your, your patients is deepening and you were obviously at that point had been, had known them for longer, had been in attending for longer your practice was was changing in that way and developing do you ever feel like your colleagues looked at you differently or judged you differently for practicing medicine kind of as a as a human rather <laughs> than just as a doctor and did you ever feel like you had to prove anything to them or like show oh. that you were just as strong as them or anything like that oh that sort of thing well i'm pretty fortunate to work at Mount Auburn, which has increasingly had, I mean, when I first started there, it was almost entirely white men. 
And I remember being on the executive committee. They wanted a young voice, you know. So I was like one of two women in the room. There were like 20 guys that were heads of departments and stuff, and they were mostly older. And the other woman in the room was taking notes. And oh. you know, it was just somebody's somebody's executive assistant or something. Yeah. Um, so uh but you know i think i've always i i didn't mind being in that position because i don't mind being the person who's like hey things aren't right here you know you all <laughs> think this way but guess what you know it's not like that and i've had that position many times um but you know like getting pregnant um I was kind of late in my life. I mean, Emily was born when I was, what was I? I think I was 37, no, 38 and almost 39. Mm -hmm. And Luke was born when I was 41. So I think a lot of people kind of looked at me and thought, you know, I wasn't, uh, wasn't gonna do it or something, but most of the people have families and the people the the guys that were nice were very nice I mean they were like, like oh you know hooray <laughs> so you know you're gonna have a baby that's great um and you know I worked in a practice where virtually everybody had children and um so I would say that you know Mount Auburn is not a I mean, it's sort of a, a haven for smart people who don't want to deal with downtown medicine, cutthroat things, having to publish, having to have a research lab, all that stuff. Some of the people do those things, but it's not a big part of public Mount Auburn life. It's way more collegial than that. And there's a sense that, you know, part of your job is to be a good parent. Like yesterday, my one of my partners was like, we have to talk about something, but I'll, I have to tell you that at 4.30, uh, I can't do it after 4.30 because uh, I'm part of a neighborhood scavenger hunt for our kids. And you know, it's like a hard deadline. <coughs> so we didn't talk. <laughs> she got over, you know, things overflowed and we talked this morning, but it was like, that's the kind of thing that people say to each other without feeling like, oh, I'm going to be judged for being a, you know, a, a, a weak link in the chain or something. That's right. And how, how do you feel that's changed from when you first became pregnant um, with your your first kid uh, and yeah. now? How, how do you feel that's changed? Um, well, there are many more yeah. women on the staff and yeah. women get pregnant. And, uh, you know, and sometimes they have visibly miserable pregnancies. <laughs> um, and, you know, my my line was always like, you know, we need children. I mean, the world needs children to go on. You can't have children. So we have the children, you know, so like, shut up. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, it's yeah. like, what is this? It's just, it's nonsense. And um, I would say in terms of medicine people, uh, you know, I like, um, you know, pretty much the most of the medical staff has children, and 
since some of them, some of them start as fairly young people, they have children on the job. And so it's just, it, it has never really been an issue. I think the, the issue comes up, you know, when you go up on maternity leave, somebody else has to cover your practice. And that's always onerous. I mean, it's, ugh, you know, it's like, it's extra work and it's every day and it's a grind, hmm. but, um, you know, we all do it for each other basically because we believe in it. So, um, so there are, uh, you know, the, in the residency program, there are usually two to five babies being born during the year. Um, and it's, you know, the residency sends pictures and is very supportive of both the fathers and mothers when that happens. So I think it's a pretty uh, evolved environment. I mean, the main problem is just who's going to do the work. Yeah. And it's a practical problem. And it's just there, but there isn't any way around it. From yeah. a practical point of view, when you were pumping with Emily and with Luke, I, I know a lot of your colleagues had kids, but most of them were men. Was it ever difficult finding just a place to pump and being allowed time to pump and yeah. that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, um, I'm trying to remember what I did. I, so I would have to do it once or twice uh, during the day. I really can't remember. I think I just found a little room and shut the door. <laughs> um, and I tried to do as much on the weekends as I could because I was freezing the milk in bags. Yeah. And, uh, and when I would get to pick Emily up on the shorter days, my breasts were like exploding. So oh, no. the first thing I would do is sit down and breastfeed. I didn't pick her up and leave. And, and fortunately, Dilla didn't care. And with Luke, unfortunately for, for us, Luke had a very weak suck. So he kind of had failure to thrive for a couple of weeks. And I really had to supplement feeding. And then at some point he was like, well, this is way easier. So I had to stop breastfeeding and, you know, it was, it was horrible, but it was, you know, it, it, it was very sad. Uh, on the other hand, um, it was easier, <laughs> you know, just bring the formula. Um, and Caroline was, you know, one was one and a half by the time she came home and she was just eating regular food. Um, so, but the, um, the women in, in the house staff basically find a, they go to the residence lounge yeah. and, you know, they're, they're all, you know, mid twenties, early thirties. And most These of the, the fathers, they, they just give each other space, you know? Um, I don't think all of the women residents who, um, who have babies are necessarily breastfeeding. Um, I, I know a few who definitely are and, you know, I, I think they still have to fight for like, look, I just, I please cover my beeper for half an hour. I have to do this. Um, and I don't think anyone likes it that much, but 
you know, I, I think we're at a better point of accepting that the only way for uh, the world to go on is that women have to nurture children. So, yeah. you know, um, so it's, it's way, uh, it's way different than it was a while ago. And again, I have this kind of leave me alone, hard shell thing. So I didn't pay all that much attention to what anybody thought, you know, um, that's just kind of how I got through all of that. But I also feel like that, that kind of approach is kind of helpful because people actually see what is involved and does help things change. Yeah, yes. Help the men yeah. in your practice see, yeah. oh, this is just how, how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's really lovely. Okay. I know that we have taken up tons of your time on this beautiful oh. morning. Um, so I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I do have a couple of um, wrap-up questions, if that's okay yes. with you. Uh, okay. The questions we always ask every person, because it's yes. very interesting. Okay. Um, so the <laughs> first thing is, what is one piece of advice to young women who are thinking of pursuing a career in medicine who also want to pursue motherhood that you would give? Well, they should do it. <laughs> just <laughs> Is there anything just, that makes I mean, it better? Of all the things that I've done, I'm the, I'm the proudest slash happiest with being a mother. You know, like I, there was a lady in, uh, I remember when we used to go to North Sandwich meeting up in uh, Sandwich, who and she was like, and we were there one Mother's Day, and she was like, I don't know why, she had a British accent, I never understood why we have Mother's Day. I thought being a mother was the, ba the biggest prize of all, you know, and I agree with her. So that's my advice is like, you know, but... Uh, it's a good idea to surround yourself or at least have some allies in the motherhood process. Um, and, and childcare that you trust is really important. Yeah. So, um, and for the most part, we, we had that. I mean, it went from good to excellent. Um, people who shared our philosophies, even though we didn't know what our philosophies were. <laughs> <laughs> no. they're, the, they're the best people. The unspoken uh, friendship of yeah. understanding is the best, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah. People who do it the way you would do it, even though you haven't done it yet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I mean, I picked, I remember when I was home with Caroline, I, I went to... Uh, I was taking her to various places, and we went to this little music program they had at Fernald's, not at Fernald, at Perkins School, for, uh, which is a private school for blind kids. And they had a music program that was really great. And so this woman, Judy, who unbeknownst to me was a childcare provider, you know, a home stay-home daycare person, she brought her little coterie of two and three and four-year-olds. And at the end of the program, the kids were running around this, um, like a patio kind of thing. And one of them fell on his face and cut his lip and was like bleeding like a pig. And he kind of realized what had happened. He went running over to Judy. And uh, the way Judy handled it, you know, she was just very matter of fact and kind of unruffled. And uh, I was like, I'm going to take Caroline to that place. And it was a great place. It was, you know, she was just, 
uh, very affirming of children and brought a really diverse group of kids together. And, you know, it, it was that kind of thing. So just seeing it in action. That was perfect. Yeah. All right. And then our very last wrap up question is one thing that listeners can do to make themselves 1% stronger every day, physically, emotionally, academically, or socially. Um, have at least five minutes to yourself every day to either, you know, meditate, stare out the window, uh, have, have some time when you decide what you're going to do, if, if, if at all possible. Um, don't just be out there giving to everybody else all the time. No. That's, like that. that's perfect. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us this morning. This has been sure. so wonderful. Good. Well, I'll look forward to seeing the podcast. It'll be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we're yeah. excited. Yeah, thank you so much and see you soon. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That was so amazingly inspirational. And I just love how calm and matter of fact Pat is talking about what to many people is an incredibly different thing going through being a woman in medicine in an early generation when there weren't very many and not only that but having three kids and raising three amazing children while practicing a full-time medicine career and being a pioneer in in medicine for women it's just so so inspirational and pat does it with such a calm grace well, which is it's amazing it's, uh, because of people like her that things are moving in the right direction now yes i am literally i am grateful every single day and i'm in debt every single day to women women like pat who paved the way for me to live a relatively normal life like i live a pretty pretty normal life compared to i think generations of women in medicine before me i I do my work. I come home. I take care of my kids. I d was able to have two kids during my medical training without too much trouble. It's been fine. I mean, by far not perfect, but my no. goodness, you notice how things have moved on for the better. And it's it's not it's perfect, but women women in generations before me have have created and created a system and paved the way to make it at least start to be more doable there's infrastructure for conversation and change now which yeah. there wasn't which is just yeah. brilliant there's role models to show yeah. this is possible and it can be done it can be done well and so now we need to make sure everybody can do it absolutely agree and that th i absolutely also love the story of adoption in this as well i do too as like not only already being a, a doctor mama but taking on the adoption thing as well and hearing that story and also the trip to get to go to China as well. And to get to go back and yeah. to meet Carrie's um, foster parents and the orphanage, that that must have been so moving for Carrie as well. Just an absolutely magical interview. Thank you so much, Pat. And I hope you all enjoy it too, or enjoyed it rather. Um, as always with this uh, podcast, um, you're always encouraged to get in contact with us um, if you have um, any stories you'd like to share, um, we can read out on the podcast or if you'd like to be interviewed or know people you think should be interviewed. Um, my, my, uh, the big news of the last couple of weeks is that a wonderful Dr. Mummer has, uh, 
been nominated to head the CDC. So that is my Yay! long-term goal. <laughs> My long-term goal to get the head of the CDC on this CDC on this podcast, but we'll if see any, how it goes. y'all know her, you can <laughs> give her our email address. Uh, a Bostonian as well, so that makes it all the better. Oh so, yeah, you know we might. There's a chance you might bump into <laughs> her. <you know. laughs> um, but yeah, so do get in contact with us. How can people get in contact with us, Mister Mister? <laughs> no, as, oh dear. Uh, we're recording this after the, we put the kids to bed, so we're a bit. It's tired a little today. bit late. I apologize. Uh, sorry. Let's try again. Uh, how do people get in contact with us, uh, Mrs. Dr. Alice Kaufman, MD. Well, you can just go with wife. Wife. How? how wife. <laughs> What's the email? Everybody is welcome to email us. We are at drmamapodcast at gmail.com. That's D-R-M-A-M-A podcast at gmail.com. They can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever they find their podcasts. And they can contact us on all the socials. All the socials? Sure. All the socials. Okay, Sean Cottery. I apologize. <laughs> um, at Dr. Mama Podcast, and that is on Twitter. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is Alex's best Sean Connery impression. As <laughs> you can tell, Alex does not actually shine at impressions. <laughs> <laughs> I can do stereotypical English, and that is it. <laughs> I can do a better stereotypical English. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on then. Now's your now now you now you just said this on a podcast. Uh oh, <laughs> I don't want to do it. I would like a cup of tea, please, sir. <laughs> no, I can't stop that. <laughs> well, we've broken Alice. She's now uh, giggling off mics. But uh, thank you for listening, and uh, do tune in next week. Uh, we'll be doing the next episode on New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve. It's almost over. Twenty twenty. Thank goodness. Yeah, well, like, it's not, it's not going <sighs> to miraculously change when it turns into 2021, please, to be fair, Please, please let it change miraculously. COVID's just going to vanish. It'll become January 21st, and all the COVID is just going to evaporate into sparkles in the sky. Uh, I think it's time for Alice's bedtime, memory. so we're going to say goodbye now. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye! <laughs> goodbye, friends. The Dr. Mama Podcast is presented by Alice Kaufman and produced, mixed, and edited by Alex Cumming, who also provided the original music. 